Well, please take your Bibles and turn with me to the Psalm 102. And Psalm 102. We'll read from verse number 18 of the Psalm 102. Let's again hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 102, verse 18. This shall be written for the generation to come. And the people which shall be created shall praise the Lord. For he hath looked down from the height of his sanctuary. From heaven did the Lord behold the earth. To hear the groaning of the prisoner to loose those that are appointed to death, to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and his praise in Jerusalem, when the people are gathered together in the kingdoms to serve the Lord. He weakened my strength in the way, he shortened my days. I said, O my God, take me not away in the midst of my days. Thy years are throughout all generations. Of old hast thou laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish But thou shalt endure, yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. The children of thy servants shall continue, and their seed shall be established before thee. Amen. This is the word of God uh, to your hearts. May God be pleased to bless the public reading of his word again to us again today. We are again continuing in our studies in the existence and the attributes of our God and seeking to move sort of in a a logical fashion through the various ways in which God reveals himself. And today I want to come uh, to consider the truth uh, was known as God's immutability. God's immutability. And having in recent weeks studied God's perfect self-sufficient being, it really leads naturally to this other consequence that God is immutable. Again, that language, that word comes from the idea of something that is mutable is changeable. And so to be mutable is to be changeable, uh, but God being immutable is without change and indeed is unchangeable. And so it goes beyond the statement that God does not change. It makes the declaration that God cannot change. That's an important distinction. It's a fine distinction, but it is an important distinction nonetheless. God does not change, God has not changed, and God cannot change. It's a declaration of the unchanging nature of God. And so I want to begin uh, really by looking at some biblical evidence. And first and foremost, the name that God gives to himself in Exodus chapter 3, revealing himself to, to Moses, the great I am. The language of the continual present tense is a strong implication that God does not change. It's not, again, so much that God was this in the past and will be this in the future. It is that God is the eternal I am. The ever-present, ever-unchanging God, simply the great I am. I am that I am has sent you, is the language of Exodus chapter 3. But we've looked again here at Psalm 102. And again, you'll note the language is used here. And in verse number 27, it says, But thou art the same. Now, that is in contrast to what's described of the creation in verse number 25 and 26. God has laid the foundation of the earth. He has made the earth and the heavens with the work of his hands, but they change. 
As a vesture shalt thou change them. Again, it's a recognition of God's sovereignty over the, the created order. But they shall be changed, but thou art the same. It's a clear, emphatic statement, a declaration of the God who does not change. You'll see similar language over in Hebrews chapter 1. You turn across there, uh, again, because it's significant just as a, uh, as a passing comment here. But he- Hebrews chapter 1. You see how this kind of concept is used, even with regards to our Savior. Hebrews chapter 1. Again, this is an extended quotation regarding the authority and the deity of Christ Jesus. Um, One of the ways that the Apostle proves the deity of the Lord is by the quotation of these various uh, parts of the Psalter. You have example, verse number 8, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. Again, the eternality of God mentioned there in his sovereignty. But then also down in verse number 11. They shall perish, but thou remainest, and they shall all wax old after the garment. And as a vesture shalt thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Again, one of the heresies that has arisen in, in recent years, not recent years, but over the course of the years, uh, is again that Christ is not the eternal Son of God. But one of the proofs for the Son of God being eternal is the fact that the Son of God is unchangeable. And only an uncreated God is unchangeable. And it's one of the proof texts for the co-equality of the Father and the Son from all eternity. The Son is the eternal begotten of the Father. Again, it's an important declaration to emphasize uh, at all times. And here's a proof of that in Hebrews chapter 1, as the apostle is defending uh, the deity of the Savior, he points to the fact that Christ, as the Son of God, is the unchanging God. Thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. And we'll see that probably next week. Uh, We'll see that's applied over uh, later on in Hebrews. Jesus, the same yesterday, today, and forever. But then look back to Malachi chapter 3. I'm just looking here at the foundational texts here now, when it comes to the unchanging nature of God. Uh, this is one that's again very, very well known. Malachi chapter 3, verse number 6. For I am the Lord, I change not. And therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. And here again, in the context, the, the idea is of because God is the unchanging God, his, if you like, his decrees are eternal and unchanging then his covenant, the commitments, are secure. And so it's promised to, to bless the seed of Abraham and to, again, bring about a seed beyond number, ultimately in Christ Jesus. That covenant promise cannot fail because God changes not. He is the eternal, unchanging God. And so that's just really, the, to begin with today, just a declaration of some of these foundational proof texts for the unchanging nature of our God. He is indeed immutable. But even if these texts were not present, we would still need to conclude that God is the unchanging God. And there are several, if you like, theological corollaries that that come together in this regard that because this is true of God, therefore he's unchanging. And there are several of them, and I've I've kind of gone to the type notes today rather than the handwritten notes because there there are some some long words that that, that require good spelling. So you have the truth again of God's aseity 
In light of what we've seen regarding God's aseity, we are led to the conclusion that God therefore must be unchanging. Again, even without the, the textual proof that we've just seen, even without God's self-declaration of who he is, it is necessary true that God is unchanging in light of God's being. We know that God's aseity is a doctrine that God is unmoved and uncreated, underived, the eternal self-sufficient God. That implies that God has never known change. No growth, no development, no beginning. He is the eternal God without ever being changed. There is nothing beyond God, above God, before God, that can then change God in any way. He's totally underived. Uh, the reason that we know change is because we've been, have been created by God. There's a beginning and then a development in our, in our created state. But not so with God. He is eternally the same, the unchanging God. Again, I, I know some of these things are, if you like, they're theological concepts. But I present them to you that you'll understand more and more of who God is in the fullness of his being. And so because of God's aseity, he is and necessarily the unchanging God. It's also true regarding what we might call God's ideality. Uh, that's a kind of an I-T-Y word uh, that really is a statement of God's perfection. He is the perfectly ideal God. No flaws, as we saw uh, last time. No flaws, no deficiencies. Uh, there's, there's, there's nothing inadequate with God. And we saw last time that leads necessarily to the immutability of God. If God were to change, he would either change for the better or the worse. If for the better, therefore not perfect beforehand. If for the worse, then not perfect in the, in the, in the present. So there can be no change with God. Any change implies at some point God being less than altogether perfect and ideal. He is the perfect God. And that, that, that very definition is, again, leads to the implication of God's immutability. Mutation would spoil his eternal perfection and his true deity. And there can be no change in Jehovah. You've also got then the idea of God's simplicity. We've mentioned this in passing beforehand. And again, we, I've, mentioned, I've said to you before, Stephen Sharnock, the English Puritan, we're really using his work as a help and a guide in our studies in this, in this section. And Sharnock doesn't have a separate section for God's simplicity. It's really assumed through his treatment of the, the being and the character of God. But the idea of God's simplicity is not that God is not complex in some way. It's not that he's easily understood. It is a statement theologically that God does not have parts. One God, one simple, pure spirit is how the language is often used to define the nature of God. He is one simple, pure spirit without parts. The presence of parts permit change. Okay, so we, we are not simple. We are body, soul, physical, spiritual entities. And so that allows for change. In your physicality, you can lose a body part and therefore undergo change in, in, the, in the crassest terms. But God has no such parts. If you, if you take something away from God, he ceases to be God. All that is God is in God. He is, he is that one entire being. And to remove anything from God, it really takes God away altogether. 
beings. It's all one being, the simplicity of God. Put it this way, there's nothing in God that is not God. You can't take it away from God and he still remains God. It's this doctrine of God's simplicity. Also true regarding God's infinity. Again, change immediately implies limits. Limits of beginning or limits of boundaries in some way. But if something is added to God, if change comes about through addition, then God is not infinite before. You cannot add to infinity. And it's also true if something's taken away from God, then he's not infinite now. It's, again, a similar thought to his perfection. God is beyond limits. You've also got the idea of God's eternity. And this one I'll look at for a minute or two here in the Psalm 102. The concept of change implies the potential for decline. If there is a potential for change in God, then there is a potential for decline in God. But God is the eternal, incorruptible, inexhaustible God. And that's the idea here of Psalm 102. They shall perish, verse 26, they shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. And so the statement of 27a, thou art the same, is again connected to the eternality of God. Thy years shall have no end, and they, you, you, you shall not perish, you shall not change. The, the inexhaustible being of God. Here I'm going to ask you to step in. Why is this doctrine practically important to your life? And what we're dealing with, really, very heavy, weighty theological concepts. God's simplicity, God's aseity. There's things we don't discuss in modern speech very often. But this concept of God's unchanging nature with his eternality is actually very, very practically relevant in your daily life. So in what way? Yeah, uh. Okay, so Dan's just for those watching on Dan's comment, basically the unchanging God, if I can summarize what you're saying, brother, the unchanging God, again, gives us the, the sense of the unchanging nature of God's law and God's will. Um, and it also implies to us that we've got to be very careful when we, we try to add to those ideas God has spoken, uh, and that's the final declaration of his will, and that's, that's an important concept. Again, 
It's not helpful, Dan, helpful. Really focusing on the issue of, of God's eternality and the unchangeability of, of, of God as well. Beyond that, yeah, Ken. Yes. We won't have eternal life. And even the very essence of eternal life here. So, so you, you're looking at this practically in your, in your home life, in your neighborhood, in your society. We are declaring this world is not all there is. And this world is perishing. And to give your life for this world is to give your life for something that will not last. And so therefore we must set our hopes on God who does not change, on Christ the unchanging God, because the only thing that will last for all eternity is the Godhead. And our union with Christ and our communion with the Godhead will be the foundation of actually just simply delighting in life in eternity. And so if our hopes are based upon this world, again, that's a false hope. And we have no, we've, we've no security there. And even beyond the last security, there's no satisfaction. But our portion is the Lord's, to use the language of the psalmist. The Lord is our portion. He is our delight. He is our joy as the eternal God. And so it's a tremendous practical application this because, let's be honest, if you look at a, a schedule of your life, you're pouring your energies so often into things that do not last. So how do you do as a Christian? Well, we are called by God to have dominion over this world. We're called by God to work and to labor in this world. But if we work and labor in this world to the end of this world, we're working for an idol. But if we work and we labor in this world for the glory of God, then we're working and laboring in this world for the eternal state, not for the now. It adjusts how you think as a parent. It adjusts how you think as a laborer as you go about your work tomorrow. You know, you think again of those who are told in Ephesians chapter 4, not to steal but labor, that they may have to give. So there's a sense in which the labor immediately has a God-glorifying function. It's not about retirement as much as it is about providing and serving the church of Christ. We are so very far short of this in the modern American Christian church. And part of the rationale, again, is we live for the now and not the eternal because we forget about the eternal unchanging being of God. You see the practical import of this? We're going to see it again this morning. We come to Elijah. Elijah's going to be translated. He leaves the temporary for the eternal. He leaves the, the now and the short term for that which will never, ever end. Elijah's translation happens in one time. But he's in heaven now. And I mean now. Right now, in this very moment, Elijah is with the Lord in glory. And has been for hundreds and hundreds of years. You see how it changed your thinking? And we need, to, we need to look at ourselves so often and consider it again. What am I really living for? Am I living just to you know, get to the point in time that I, I can retire and have a comfortable pension and go through my life and live, live comfortably in the end of my days? Without any guarantees? Without any prospects? I'm, I'm, please, I am not suggesting for a second that there's a, even remotely a godly perspective of financial recklessness. That's so clearly taught against in the Word of God. That's not my point. I'm going to see, see our brother down here. And, hey, man, brother, you've got to be careful about your finances. I'd say amen to that. But it's perspective. It's mindset. It's a heart attitude. 
Am I seeking in this world to live for the glory of God in home, in church, and also in society? So that's the, I thought I'd take some time to pause there and consider again the practical import of the eternality and the immutability of God. Because again, you see down in verse number 28, another sort of application that the children of thy servants shall continue and thy seed shall be established for thee. And that's the idea. The, the eternality of God is the guarantee of the purpose of God being fulfilled in all generations. So though we pass into glory, the word of God will not fail to continue to bring about gospel seed in this world for the glory of his name. The unchanging nature of our God has eternity. One other one in terms of six of these kind of uh, theological, uh, if you like, consequential doctrines that lead back and forward to God's immutability. And one is the idea of sovereignty. I understand, I, I often pray about the chaos of this world. But when I speak of the chaos of this world, I'm referring to the sinfulness of man living in this world. But this world is not in chaos. It is, it is in stability. You know that as long as the Savior tarries, the sun will rise tomorrow morning. This God is ordered. We understand, and again, the, the whole debate about the environment we understand that God has made this world so that we can live on this world, that we can breathe the oxygen that we do, and the plants can again pour that oxygen back into the world. This world is in order and is in balance in the purpose and the will of God. It implies a stable, immutable creator and provider. That's a very important doctrine. You understand, as you, as, you, as you examine this world and you see the, the sovereignty and the rule of God in this world, that itself, because this world is so ordered, you're seeing an implication of the immutability and unchanging nature of God. He is perfectly stable, perfectly controlled, perfectly in order. He is not the author of confusion. He's the God of order. If you like, it's a theological principle that necessarily, or necessarily leads the doctrine of God's immutability. Okay, you see that? Yeah, just, just six of those, there's more. Because again, when you think of God, all that is God is God, and so everything points to every other truth. There's connections between all the doctrines of God. You can draw lines. When you think about God in these various ways, he reveals himself. So I've just taken those six to illustrate that God must be unchangeable necessarily, even without any biblical evidence for that in terms of the clear proof text we saw. Yeah, Tom. No, it's okay. Again, for those watching online, Dan's making the connection between God's unchangeable 
nature and our suffering. And there's, there's real help in times of trial and afflictions when it comes again to, to understanding the immutability of God. And we're going to say that in a moment or two before we finish today. One of the challenges when it comes to God's unchanging nature is his will is unchanging. One thing to understand is the unchanging will of God decrees things that will change. And so some people get confused. If God's unchanging, why is there so much change in the world? Because the unchanging will of God decrees change in our, in our mortality. He decrees the fact that we decay and we fade because, again, it points us to the unchanging nature of God and we're drawing towards God, as Dan has said, drawn towards Christ as the unchanging Savior. So let's look at a couple of aspects regarding, again, these are just illustrations, really. God's immutable. He's certainly immutable in his essence and his being. We've kind of said enough of that already. He's the unchanging God in who he is. But there are two things particularly that I think, again, have practical importance to us. God is unchanging in two areas, in his knowledge and in his will. And those two aspects, are, if you're, they're drawn, lines are drawn to us in the word of God in this regard. When it comes to knowledge, God never gains or loses knowledge. He knows the end from the beginning, to use the language of the Scriptures. He is the all-knowing God, not only knowing what has happened and what is happening, but what will happen. He is a God of perfect knowledge. And if God can change, then the idea, again, those who are holding some sort of progressive theism, are suggesting that when men in their free will act in a certain way, then God learns something new. He increases in knowledge. That's a denial of God's immutability. And it gives the idea that God can develop and grow in some way of knowledge to then improve his knowledge. God cannot improve his knowledge. He is the all-knowing God. His knowledge is absolutely full. And you know, that's such an encouragement. That's the foundation of absolute truth. We must affirm in a postmodern age, or a post-postmodern age, wherever we are right now, we must affirm again there is such a thing as absolute truth. And the immutability of God is the foundation for absolute truth. There's nothing that's going to change God's mind. No new information, nothing new in his understanding that will cause him to change his word today. It is the unchanging word. It is the word of the unchanging God because God knows all things and therefore has the power and the right and the ability to declare truth. God is truth. The unchanging nature of God in terms of knowledge. See the importance of that? But also then in terms of his will. Knowledge of God and his will are linked. Turn to Acts 15. Acts 15. And we'll finish this today and then we'll move forward next Lord's Day in the will of God. Acts 15, just showing the connection here between the, the knowledge of God and the verse 18. Acts 15, verse 18. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. It's just, just taking that statement, and I know it's in the context of the Jerusalem Council and what's going on here. I just literally want to take those words as they are in isolation. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. And it connects the idea of God's eternal decree with his knowledge. These things are coming together, the unchanging nature of God, but they're known from the beginning of the world. 
and before the beginning of the world, what is there? There is the eternal, unchanging God. Thou art the same. Which means all that God is and all that God does is in God before time begins. The unchanging will of God. You see, one of the challenges, we'll see this next time, one of the challenges, and we'll come to this list next time, one of the challenges to God's immutability is the idea of creation. Well, God has therefore done something for the first time. Does that imply change? And one of the answers to that objection is no, because God, He doesn't become a creator when He creates. He is the eternal creator in His will. He's got the intention to create from all time. And then, because He's not inactive, or He's not a God without action in time, He then does, He creates but he does so as the eternal creator. And the same is true of redemption. We'll see that next time also. So the, the connection between God's will and his knowledge come together. And then, then turn back to Job chapter 23. And here's just another practical implication. Job 23. And this, is a, this really is a central chapter in the book of Job. As Job is really wrestling with his with his suffering and with his friends who have, who have not been very helpful in giving him clarity of his, of his condition. And so he's trying to find the Lord and understand the Lord. He goes backwards, forwards, can't perceive God. And then verse number 13, he says this, But he is of one mind, and who can turn him? And what his soul desireth, even that he doeth. For he performeth the thing that is appointed for me. And many such things are with him. I encourage you, if you're in a time when you're, you're suffering and you're undergoing affliction, theologically, this is the place where you must turn. God's perfect, wise, and unchanging will. He performeth a thing that is appointed for me, and not only that, there are things to come that are already with him. Our future is not unknown to the Lord. Yeah, George. Yeah, so everything God does, every act of God is loving, is holy, is just, is good. That's the, going back to the simplicity of God, God does not act inconsistently. But the challenge to God's immutability comes, and we'll see this next week, it comes in the idea of God repenting or even in the doctrine of propitiation. Because there you've got the idea where God is, is wrathful and then appeased by Christ. And so you've got an issue there in terms of, well, is there, is there for change, if you like, in the, in the being of God towards a sinner? So we can go back and look at that in more detail. But in terms of your question regarding, well, is God loving in his actions and providence? We're looking at Job, we're looking at Job 23 here. Is he loving in his actions? Yeah, God is loving even, even in those actions that we perceive to be hard. And in some way, you've just got to declare that and state that. 
And that God, so God never acts in a manner that is not consistent with all that he is. So he, I know you, I know. Yeah, no, I, I get this. So it's, it's not apologetically defending the faith and answering that. I think initially you state it, as you're saying. You say, this, is, this is what the Bible teaches. It teaches the, the, the simplicity of our God. The question is, do you believe in such a God? Okay, because you get to that point, so you're saying, well, I want a God that's like this and not like this and the other way. And so when you come to apologetics defending the being of God, where is God, where does God reveal his holiness and his love and perfection? It's on the cross. So you go back again, ultimately, to, well, well what, what God do you want? You want the God of Calvary. That's the God the sinners must want and desire. They, do, they may not perceive that, but you've got to go back to Calvary. And then, of course, the Calvary, you go to the resurrection, because the cross, the resurrection, doesn't mean anything. It's a cross leading to resurrection, and that doctrine is the defense of the being and the character of God, where His holiness and His love is seen, they're seen in perfect harmony and perfect unity, and they bring glory to His name. And they're also, they're experientially for the benefit of the sinner. And that's where I go, George, in that. But stating it's important to begin with, just declaring it to be true, that God is loving and holy in all that He does, and these things, there's no internal conflict in God. We feel that, don't we, sometimes? We feel conflict in, in our own souls. We, we think, if I do this... Or if I do that, and we have this wrestling because we're, we're sinful and we're complex, but God is altogether different from us, is able to function and work in every aspect of his character perfectly and without any internal con- contradiction or con- conflict. It's part of the statement of our doctrine of God. Yeah, but so we, we, we consider these attributes of God as additional to ourselves. So, again, George, again, for those watching, George mentioned again the, 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 the delight and the purity of God's holiness. But we, we live in a state where we can lack love at times. And we can grow in love. We can abound more and more. God never lacks love. And that's why the Bible does not say that God has love, but God is love. God does not have love in addition to who he is. God does not have truth in addition to who he is. God is truth. He is the amen. So that, that language of, of God, he is holy. He does not have holiness. He is holy. That, that precision of language in the Bible is really, really important. And, and again, we, we, we battle to grasp it. And we've been, we've been looking at our book in our book club, The Blessed and Boundless God. And there's times we've been scratching our head in the book club going, I, I can't explain all this or understand all this, but I can state it. This is what it is. 
And that's what the Bible teaches regarding the nature and the character of our God, this, this glorious, unchanging God. Let me just read one more text, and then I'll take Dan's comment in the last. But it's Psalm 33. Just, just one last reference in this, and then we'll, we'll draw it to close. And again, we'll come back to these difficulties next, uh, next Lord's Day, particularly looking at the Incarnation uh, next Lord's Day, because it's another challenge to God's immutability. How does the unchanging God take on uh, humanity without changing? Okay, so you need to look at that next Lord's Day in the will of the Lord. But uh, Psalm 33 and the verse number 11 it simply says, The counsel of the Lord standeth forever. Again, emphasize the singularity of the term here. God's one perfect unchanging will. The counsel of the Lord standeth forever. That is our bedrock, dear child of God. And the certainty that God will fulfill all his promises and do all his will and will glorify himself through his Son forever and forever and forever. I think that's a good ground to worship our God. Yeah, at times we, we, we were so far short of God in understanding who he is, but he is the great and glorious God worthy of our praise and our adoration. So Dan, I'll take your comment and then... Yeah, amen. So you, you go back to Christ in all of these things and you know, do so with compassion. Again, if you're dealing with an unbeliever who's suffering, the worst thing to do is minimize their suffering. This world is groaning. They are entitled to groan with creation in their suffering. So be careful that you don't become Job's friends and you, you give these theological answers to the suffering of an unbeliever in such a way that you remove the, the genuine nature of human suffering. Suffering is, is what it is. It is suffering. And you've got to get alongside, and even the very, you reference Hebrews 4, Christ is touched with the feeling of our infirmity. See, the unchanging God takes on changing humanity and brings him in perfect unity, whereby we have a high priest who's now God and man in glory, and he understands our suffering. You point people with compassion. You've got to be so very careful that we have theological knowledge the unbeliever doesn't have. But we come across as being cold and wooden and harsh, and we don't portray really the character of God towards, um, the character of Christ towards human suffering. So, uh, a lot to think about, a lot to consider. This has been a, a helpful engagement again today. May God help us to, to worship our God today and delight in who He is in the Word of Truth. Let's, let's bow together, please, in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your Word that's, again, clear in its revelation of yourself. And yet, there are things, O oh God, that are beyond our comprehension, beyond our grasp. Help us, O oh God, to develop and to grow in our knowledge, uh, to rejoice in who you are, and again, to praise you, Lord, for all of your goodness. Help us in the word today. Help us to worship your name. May again Christ be glorified in our midst, as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.